Hello and welcome to T-Pids. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. T-Pids is the podcast where we select a VHS tape from either my collection or Lindsay's collection. We watch it and then we talk about it. This episode is Lindsay's turn to select a tape, so uh, what'd you pick out for us? We watched 1988's Willow. This is a uh, George Lucas-Ron Howard mashup. Directed by Ron Howard, produced and I guess with a screen story written by George Lucas. And boy, what an eclectic cast this movie has. <laughs> You've got little old Warwick Davis as the title character. Which this film was made for him. Yeah, it was written for him. He played a minor role in Return of the Jedi. He was the main Ewok. And uh, because of that, George Lucas wrote him a whole film. And just off the top, I'll give this movie big credit for having a lead character be a dwarf. I think that's pretty cool. It's pretty cool, except that he didn't get top billing or on my VHS copy, any billing at all. (laughs) Yes, He's third build after uh, Val Kilmer, and that kind of makes sense. Val Kilmer was hot off Top Gun, but he he gets third billing after Joanne Whaley. Who has, she's got a significant supporting role, but she's she's not a lead. She's the most thankless role in this movie. (laughs) She she is not a lead. He is clearly the the lead. He plays the character Willow for whom the, the film is named. But I, I think that a big part of it was Warwick Davis hadn't done anything yeah. Other than Return of the Jedi, really, at this point. I he mean, was this also is... a baby. He was only 17 when they made this film. Uh, later on, he'd, of course, go on to do the Leprechaun films, and he would be in the Harry Potter movies. In two roles. Yeah, yeah. He's Griphook and Professor Flitwick, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. And I think he actually ended up wrangling himself a third thing to play during that series. I can't remember what, but there was. I feel like he made himself another role. Yeah, this man's work ethic is something to be admired, and he is a delight in it. There are a lot of problems with this movie, though, and it's, we'll get into them. Yeah, it does have its problems. So why'd you pick out Willow? Is this a special tape for you growing up, Lindsay? Yeah, I was obsessed with this movie when I was growing up. I thought it was the best because it's got all... It, it's got what you want as a kid. It's got the fantasy. It's got the excitement. It has characters that you can relate to. And it's got, you know, a cheeky Val Kilmer. Bad teeth and flowing hair and... Yeah, I did... The thing is, one of the things I was a little disappointed with on this watch was I thought he had bad teeth through the whole movie. And then on this watch, I realized that he does this transition to a romantic lead at a certain point where he suddenly he has beautiful teeth. Yeah, he's supposed to be sort of this ruffian swashbuckler at the beginning of the movie who you're not quite sure about. They first find him in a crow's cage. He's like an early iteration of Johnny Depp's Pirates of the Caribbean character. Oh, yeah, totally. (laughs) I would say with a little bit of Han Solo thrown in there. Yeah. He's He's the kind of wild card in all of this. What's funny is, as the movie goes on, you're right, he gets cleaner, both in terms of his clothing and the way that he looks, but his teeth also whiten as well, it seems like. Yeah, which is kind of weird, but, you know, let's go with it. This is a magical realm. So you so you probably watched this movie quite a bit. Was this on, oh, yeah. like, Three Musketeers level, or you had the tape in your room? Uh, yeah, I, I think I watched this more than Three Musketeers, for sure, because when we were watching it, I realized that I actually had a lo- little bit of a hard time focusing when we were watching it this go-round, because I realized I remembered it so well. 
because I'd seen it so many times. This was a movie that, in my mind, I pair with The Princess Bride, even though they're really pretty different. But there's still those kind of, like, irreverent fantasy, uh, fantastical comedies. Yeah, I thought of both The Princess Bride and Labyrinth, which were both before this and have a lot of similarities. Yeah, Princess Bride was a year before this. I think this technically was more successful initially than The Princess Bride, but The Princess Bride has way more of a following now yeah you know i think all three of those movies weren't big hits upon Mm -mm. release like i I think that the fantasy crowd hadn't quite built at this point but they were sort of sowing the seeds for like later cult followings on vhs yeah we're actually recording this on september 11th and one of the things that i read today was um an argument that fantasy films got really popular after september 11th because people wanted escapism and you didn't really see any war films until quite a while later like uh, War of the Worlds more of a sci-fi but it was like one of those breakthrough ones where they were kind of changing the tone again in film back to something that was more serious more realistic the, the Tom Cruise Steven Spielberg one yeah yeah, yeah the remake I, I buy that I also blame September 11th for the death of the rom-com aww <laughs> The poor rom-com. But that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think that syncs up perfectly because, I mean, 2001 was the first Harry Potter movie and the first Lord of the Rings movie. I mean, those were, of course, monster hits that spawned big franchises and lots of uh, imitators in the process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what's Willow about? We, we, We know that it's fantasy. We know that there's some Val Kilmer and some Warwick Davis going Mm -hmm. on. For the uninitiated, what is this, uh... This Ron Howard, George Lucas team up all about. So essentially there's an evil sorceress that wants to keep her power. She wants the status quo to stay. And there is a baby that is going to bring her down and she wants that baby dead. Essentially the baby ends up in Willow's hands and he has to sort of go through this journey where he learns about himself and he kind of learns about the world and at the same time saves her and the world. So it's it's kind of, it's sort of Moses meets the Hobbit. Yeah, I mean, just like Moses, uh, the baby is put in the, uh, the river, not the Nile River, but found in a basket. Found by Willow's children, which this this man is 17 when they're filming, and he has mysteriously two, like, five- or six-year-old children, which I, I had a hard time... I did As a kid, I totally bought that he was a dad, but when I was watching it this time, I was like, he is babyface. Those are not his children. Why did he have children? Yeah, just like Star Wars, this is a ripoff of a lot of other things. Uh, <laughs> I, I see a lot of The Hobbit, just in the sense that this peck village where... Yeah. Um, basically all these dwarves live it's it's exactly like the shire and willow is pretty much exactly like bilbo baggins in that he's really you know and doing his own thing he doesn't want anyone to bother him but adventure comes calling yeah and so my theory is that he is a father so that you don't confuse him with bilbo or frodo because they were single when their adventures happened and so, well, no, Willow's totally different. He's this steady, fatherly man. And also, they went to great lengths so that the Gandalf character is totally incompetent. He likes to rattle this thing of bones together and throw them on the ground to, like, point the direction. And there's a great scene where he throws them down. He's like, this means nothing to me. 
And there's another great moment where he puts a dove in the air to point the way where yeah. they should go, and it flies back to the village, and then he's like, ignore the bird! Yeah. Except that our Gandalf is actually a woman, if you think about it. Oh, the true they, Gandalf oh, of yeah. the movie is a transmogrified woman who's been turned into an animal. And so Willow has to kind of fight to get the magic power, get his magic power together and in line. Because until that time, until later in the movie, his only experience is doing like carnival sort of magic. Like, look at me, put this fire against my arm and stuff like that. Yeah. Disappearing pig tricks and all that. And so he has to actually do real magic suddenly on this journey and bring back Lady Gandalf. These morphing shots were a big deal at the time. I think ILM invented them, we were reading, uh, basically when Roselle would morph from a possum into a goat, into a tiger, and all these different morphs that happen. Yeah, this is the Lady this Gandalf, Roselle. A pretty uh, state-of-the-art technology for the time. And it is pretty impressive. Like, even, they did a lot of practical effects and stuff, too, and it, it holds up pretty well. These uh, brownies do not hold up super Aww. well. That is, uh, so there are these tiny little kind of, again, kind of ripped off from Gulliver's Travels in this yeah, case. Yeah, absolutely. These tiny little very pygmies. Clearly. Very blatantly, they even tie down uh, Willow, like that famous part of the book. These little, I guess they're kind of like woodland nymphs. Mm -hmm. They kind of talk like uh, they're Latino. It's like <laughs> a really bad comedian interpretation of what a Latino accent would yeah, be. Yeah, they're really bad. And they're very clearly just kind of, it's like a matte effect where they were filmed just normal size and then shrunk down and interacting with other people on the screen. And, and they're kind of not the right, uh, the lighting is off for just them. Which is interesting, but you know, again, this is 1988. Kevin Pollock plays one of them, and I don't know, I guess they're supposed to be funny to very little kids, but um... It's it's like the snowman in Frozen again. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it, 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 they'll appeal to you if you're like under five. Which they definitely appealed to me, I loved them as a kid. Yeah. Like, I thought they were really funny and added to the movie. Maybe that's the key to making one of these movies work for younger audiences, like... Take, take your story and then just, like, add one little accessory to it. One little yeah. annoying character for the little kids. Aww. I was amazed to see a fantasy movie with almost no CGI. I mean, a part of it is just the technology wasn't there yet. Yeah. But, I mean, especially when we start off in this Peck village, it's just all practical. And mm -hmm. those evil like wolves that are sent out by the evil sorceress they they're dressed up rottweilers yeah they're, they're literally just dogs with pig masks on and it's kind of awesome <laughs> and kind of disturbing they look really freaky but they move naturally because they're not puppets or anything yeah I, they're kind of jarring to see now um and and there's a a great moment early on when a whole pack of these creatures storm the Peck village. And it's yeah. actually pretty scary. I could imagine that being pretty scary for young kids. Oh, yeah, totally. There's actually a lot of famous little people in this movie. I guess because there is such a high demand for them to populate this entire village. But we uh, have the second appearance on this show of Phil Fondacaro. Ah, yeah. From Double Double Toil and Trouble. 
uh, one of my favorites. Um, he, I like that he's like the the major uh, warrior peck. Yeah, he's like the ass kicker of the tribe, and Except- he takes down one of those Rottweilers with the trident at yeah. one point. That was one of the highlights of the movie for me. I like the pecks all had. Pretty much all had English accents, except for Phil Fondacaro, who's in there with, like, a Jersey accent, like, just killing stuff. This is one of my first problems with the movie, is I was so excited to see Phil Fondacaro being a badass, killing these Rottweiler creatures. I've only, This is only my second time seeing this movie. Wait, wait, how old were you when you saw it for the first time? I actually didn't see it until college. Oh, okay. But I remember thinking both times that Phil Fondacaro is going to be a major character. And he disappears pretty early on. He's yeah. part of the that huge group that initially goes out to, to get rid of the baby, basically. And then he just kind of disappears. Yeah, they think the baby has bring, uh, brought a curse on the village, so they have to just go get rid of it. So they foist it off on Val Kilmer, who's a prisoner in a cage that they find, which seems <laughs> it's a great idea to give that to a crazy man named Mad Mortigan. I think they just wanted the burden relieved as yeah. quick as possible, except Willow, who felt a little more of an obligation yeah. to it. But I can, I can see why you would think Phil Fondacaro would have a bigger presence in it, but at the same time, the film can only carry so many simultaneous simultaneous characters yeah so i think they decided to focus on just willow val kilmer and then later sorsha who is the what is it this this evil sorceress's daughter who follows all of her bidding any any movie is benefited from a phil fondacaro appearance yeah. in my book but we also have tony cox who would go on to play pretty much the main supporting character in Bad Santa. Which he's great in. He's terrific in that film as Billy Bob Thornton's uh, partner in crime. I guess he's also just another warrior in the village. Because we only see him very briefly. Yeah, only in that kind of early segment where they're trying to get rid of the baby. And this baby's relationship with Willow is kind of interesting because... Like you were saying, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for Willow to be a father. He's so young, and his initial reaction is just put the baby back in the river and let someone else worry about it. Yeah, it's not exactly... I get what they're trying to do. They're trying to show that he has some sort of arc where he goes, you know, he starts off not caring about the baby and eventually will fight for it. But it's like, if you're a father... You shouldn't be putting the baby back in the river. You should at least take it into town. Well, I mean, he takes care of his own kids. It's prioritizing your own gene pool. But I I kind of feel like they didn't really need to have him be a father. They could have had him have a romantic interest in his village who was like his betrothed or something instead of his wife. And then he could have been a caring older brother. Yeah. And that you would have had the same impact on his character and it would have been a little more believable because he's so young. Yeah, I never really felt any stakes in the fact that he had to leave his family. They kind of tried to half-ass this plot line about how he's going to lose his dirt farm to this low like sort of this elder in town. But that was kind of dropped really quickly too. Yeah, it didn't really um it just wasn't really the focus of the movie. That's where I, I kind of feel like they were just trying to separate him from the Bagginses. But I think the movie really kicks into high gear once uh, Mad Mortigan, Val Kilmer's <laughs> character, shows up. Well, he shows up and then he disappears. So they meet him when he's hanging from a cage. 
He's been left to die, pretty he's been, much. He's been left to die because he was a terrible knight and had no uh, no honor or something. We, it's not really explained. It was supposed to be explained, but they ended up cutting it from the script. Yeah, there seemed to be, even though this is a very long movie, it feels like a lot was left on the cutting room floor. But funnily enough, Val Kilmer apparently had a fall. That, that cage broke and fell on his foot so there's a point in the movie where he has a limp and the limp is a real limp that he got because of that cage yeah and we see this army approach and willow's trying to pass off the baby to one of them and we discover someone in this army gavin O'Hurlihy's character uh used to serve with uh mad martigan and that's pretty much all the real backstory we get on him gavin O'Hurlihy, i know as the uh main villain from death wish 3 <laughs> who uh, i think had a bullseye tattoo on his forehead oh wait really yeah but yet we have this kind of brief encounter where val kelmer is telling them let me out let me out i love babies uh he's telling the pecs and the pecs are just some of them are saying yeah let's just give the baby to him and willow's saying no he's a madman you can't do this but he kind of relents because he's more interested in just getting back to his family. And so they get they release Val Kilmer. He goes bonkers because he's so excited. And then he goes off with the baby and Willow heads home. We don't actually see Val Kilmer for a little while until Willow finds out that the baby's been stolen from Val Kilmer because he's useless. Yeah, it, it seems like Val Kilmer really doesn't care about the baby through all of this. He just kind of wants to get into adventures he later catches he up. He wants to get into women's pants. Yes. Just like uh, Charlie Sheen's character in Three Musketeers. Yeah, except not as beautifully romantic in his way. When we catch back up with Val Kilmer, he's dressed as a woman. And it's really surprising <laughs> at first because we don't know what's going on. But he's has these huge fake boobs and he's dressed up uh, as a woman. He's basically hiding from the husband of a woman he's sleeping with. Yeah, and his his fake boobs are made of apples, which he later eats. <laughs> it's pretty great. So they essentially reunite in this moment where Val Kilmer is dressed as a woman trying to get away with having an affair. And it turns into a big, huge fight because the people are, uh, people are on the lookout for this baby. And so Val Kilmer decides to, you know what, he's really into this baby after all, and he'll helps, help them survive. So he, but he's really just trying to escape from the husband. I think part of the problem with this whole adventure that they're on is that it seems like their quest is so arbitrary. It's kind yeah. of like originally they're just going to bring the baby to just give it to any human, basically. And then later Willow decides, oh, no, 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 I need to get it to the lake. Well, I mean, that's because he met the fairies. Oh, who in, told him. That yeah, in his to... defense, he met the fairies and the brownies. <laughs> and he had his Gulliver's travel experience. And he... In this exchange with the fairies, he receives a wand from another sorceress. Not really clear who that was. I didn't pay super close attention. Cherlindria? Again, something that sort of comes out of nowhere and is never referenced again. Yeah, that just she just kind of like magically appears and's like, "Hey, here's this ma here's this amazing wand that I have, and now you get to use it." Except he doesn't know how to do any actual magic. So that's a lot of responsibility. Yes, definitely. But they're given this instruction to track down a lake, and at the lake they're going to find 
Lady Gandalf. Rizel, who is the only one that can really face off with the evil sorceress. Yeah, and, and we first find her in possum form. Now, one thing that you mentioned that I thought was interesting while watching this is just pointing out the fact that both of the sorceresses that are dueling in the movie are played by pretty old ladies. Yeah, they're, they could both be grandmothers. And then particularly our white witch, Lady Gandalf, she is pretty elderly. Like, she has a hard time getting around. And I feel like if this movie had been... This movie could totally be made today, but if they made it today, they're going to cast hot women in these roles. Like, you would not actually see older women playing these roles. So it was actually really refreshing. Yeah, like your Charlie's Theron in yeah. Snow White and the Huntsman. Oh, yeah. Like that sort I think I feel like that sort of casting would happen now. Yeah, or like, uh, didn't Julie Roberts play the evil stepmother in um, Snow White? In one of the versions of Snow White that came oh, out in the yeah. last few years. Yeah, Mirror Mirror. Like, they're going to cast hot younger women if they remake, remake this film. They will not actually use similarly aged actresses. Yeah, I think Warwick Davis has been trying to get a sequel made for some time. Well, not trying, just sort of like, he's been saying for years that he's down to do it. And I think Val Kilmer has said as much, too. Well, and George Lucas had intended this to be a series, a film series. Like, he had written up enough story that it would support. And they ended up making, uh, they ended up novelizing uh, doing novelizations of like the sequels and gra they did graphic novels too yeah i think fantasy is kind of the easiest genre to sequelize because they can just go on more quests yeah, and I, I mean that's one of the problems that i have watching this film now i realize that the world is a little too big for this film and so you there are a lot of things that kind of go that are a little confusing or go unanswered because they didn't have time to address it. Yeah, it feels like a two hour adaptation of a really big like doorstopper fantasy book yeah. that never existed. Yes. But uh for all the, the women power that we get from the older ladies, Sorsha is kind of a throwaway character. She doesn't do a lot and they don't develop her much. Yeah, and it's interesting because Val Kilmer and Joanne Whaley were married in real life, and yet they have no chemistry in this. I don't understand how that happens so much in movies, where yeah. people that are involved in real life just do not work on screen. Yeah, it was, it's kind of weird to watch, because I, I think it's because you know that there's such a mismatch, because she seems like she her character is a little bit more intellectual is um, really gung-ho and more kind of organized and militaristic, whereas he's just all over the place and crazy yeah, and really unprofessional. So you just, it's, it's a, I guess they're pushing the opposites attract theory like you saw with Han Solo and uh, Princess Leia. Except in this case, she's the daughter of the evil sorceress all her life. She's been a faithful servant. Do we really think that one kiss from Val Kilmer is going to change all that? Well, I think it's also her soft, womanly heart that's pulled in by a baby. Oh, is that what we're supposed to believe as yeah. well? Yeah, and then I think it's it's also Willow, you know? Willow wins her over a little bit there, you know? Just pulls her in. And uh, suddenly she realizes, why am I supporting this evil woman who's been murdering babies and their moms? Even though she was watching it this entire time. This all comes down to a final epic battle between uh, some scrappy warriors that Val Kilmer has brought together, and partially Val Kilmer and partially Sorsha, because some of oh, Sorsha's yeah. people are in there too. 
they basically storm this castle that the uh, sorceress is trying to do her ritual on the baby inside of. Yeah. And it's a it's a big long action sequence. I think it takes up most of the third act of the movie. Yeah, I mean it had to be had to have been super costly because they have like morphing monsters. They this is the weird one. They have trolls. Everybody's freaking out because they have trolls, and it's clearly like men in ape suits. Yeah, that run. They're like kind of crawling up. When Willow kills one of the trolls, it turns into this weird brain shaped thing. That spouts alien-like oh. angry heads. I think it's that he used his wand and he accidentally did the turn into a lake monster spell. Is that what happened? I guess. I thought he was using a sword while carrying a baby. Willow's a badass. Yeah. He's always carrying a baby no matter what he's doing. Yeah, he's like launching. He's setting up... Uh, He's setting up catapults while holding the baby. Yeah, you know, I just realized these are two different castle siege scenes that we're talking about. Because there's first the one where Val Kilmer has locked himself inside and they're trying to get in. And later they're trying to get into a different castle. It's a different castle. Yeah, and that's part of my problem with this movie. That was kind of confusing. I didn't realize that. Is there's all these really huge action sequences and they kind of blend together in my mind like yeah, immediately after watching it. Yeah, I thought that was all the same thing. I remember having this reaction to it the first time I saw it where I feel like there's some great, you know, medieval sort of fantasy action sequences that come to mind. I think of like Army of Darkness in particular. Oh yeah. Where those those sequences are so memorable and I think a big part of it is Sam Raimi is just very good at staging action and just having like really coherent geography whereas in this I almost wonder if Ron Howard was in a little over his head because well, he Well, he hadn't done anything like this before. Yeah, I think that he he does fine, but it just it's kind of this mishmash of, you know, walk, 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 talk, 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 action, action, action. It's, it's a little static at times. Like, a lot of these action sequences sort of seem the same. Yeah, I mean, before this, he had done... The major things he had worked on were Splash and Cocoon. And Night Shift with Michael Keaton and no, Henry Winkler. I don't know that movie. Yeah, but I, I, I think Cocoon was his first really big box office splash. And I think that's what led to willow but yeah i think that he still was kind of learning the ropes on this movie because and this is something big to pick up and try and organize when i think about willow i think of sort of the characters and some of the little details but these huge i had forgotten like this huge sequence of the two-headed sea monster and all these really big well there's the whole part where the evil sorcerers turns everybody outside the castle gates into pigs yeah and willow's desperately trying to keep them keep them human i did enjoy val kilmer's pigman makeup <laughs> as he was sort of halfway through the transition but i think that it is a very difficult thing to do and i, I think ron howard does fine here it's just when he got uh, a lot of great material out of it it's just a little bit confusing yeah and i think a lot of it is kind of the screenplay i mean even though george lucas didn't write the screenplay i feel like he's not the strongest writer i feel like a lot of his writing is just very like oh let's set up this next action sequence and like let's reveal a lot of plot through exposition and Mm -hmm. that sort of thing and it does really feel like george lucas in that way yeah 
It is kind of funny just thinking about how he takes so many elements from other stories and then just changes one detail that's big enough that he can feel satisfied that it's not copying. Yeah. And I think that one thing, I, I keep thinking about Princess Bride and, and well, and even Labyrinth. I think both of those movies had, the hero really had a personal connection to what was going on. Yeah. Like, Jennifer Connelly has a relationship with that baby that she's trying to save from David Bowie. Or mm-hmm. Inigo Montoya is trying to avenge his father. You know, like, it was or, a very... Uh, also, um, Carrie Elwes's character is in love with this woman who is being, uh, you know, who someone is trying to take away. Yeah, whereas this is just kind of a big jumble where they're all just kind of strangers that... Yeah, it would be great if this evil sorceress is put out of power, but it doesn't seem like it's that bad of a place to live. It doesn't they seem have... like it's... This world isn't, like, suffering under her rule. We don't really see that very much. I think, yeah, I think you're right there, because I was just real... I was trying to think about what's wrong with it, and it, it's... it's There's a disconnect, because the world outside seems pretty fine. I mean, I was thinking the one bad thing that happened in the Peck village are the Rottweiler creatures. But, but that's they're just, after the baby. Yeah, they're just looking for the baby. Otherwise, it seems like this village is thriving. And, yeah. like, after, I think it would probably be a better story if, like, they were directly being persecuted by the queen. Yeah, if you could see some evidence of that. Because it's not really clear. You're told she's evil, and you see these dark castle scenes with her ranting and raving about needing to kill a baby, but other than that, you don't really see how she relates to the outside world. And it doesn't seem like the world improves that much after the evil queen is killed. I mean, Val Kilmer takes a shower. And he has... does get to take a shower, yeah. and her daughter suddenly wears lighter colored clothes. Yes. you know, that signals a transition, right? But it's just funny because I was reading that apparently they went through seven drafts of this screenplay before George Lucas was happy with it. And it seems like these are pretty big things that they just kind of didn't think about. Yeah. I mean, I and this is kind of a thing that, that's true in Star Wars as well. It's like we're told that there's this evil empire and yet there's all these planets that seem perfectly fine under this rule, under this but status it, quo. But I guess, like, under the status quo as it is, they're fine. But there's the threat that they'll be destroyed out of nothing, you know? Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, there's still a threat to them. And so, I guess technically there's still a threat to the Peck Village, even though it appears to be fine. Yeah, I just don't really get that from this movie. Is this my first VHS that didn't have any trailers? I'm pretty sure Death Becomes Her didn't have any trailers. Oh, that's right. So this is my second one. Well, I don't know. I'd have to check the the records on that. (laughs) All right, Lindsay. Well, this is your tape. Do you buy it? Do you rent it? Do you tape over it? What do you think of Willow now? I'm going to say rent it. I'm really disappointed because I thought that I was going to say it was going to be a firm buy it. Um, Because in my mind, this movie is wonderful and equally as good as... The Princess Bride, and it was to me as a child, I feel like, but now seeing it again as an adult, it doesn't hold up as well as I thought it would. It's still it's still lovely, it's still charming, it's worth seeing, but I don't know if I can have revisit it in the near future. I'll, I'll have my kids watch it. Yeah, you know, I'm somewhere between rented and tape over it, to be honest. Like, it's okay. I... You don't have my childhood fondness for this movie in your mind. And I think that's a big part of it. Because I didn't grow up with this movie, I sort of have the same thing with The Goonies, where 
I didn't grow up with that movie, so I'm a little perplexed by people that love it. All that I can see are just kind of all the problems with that movie. I still haven't seen The Goonies. It'd be an interesting movie to watch at some point. I'd be very curious to to see what you think of The Goonies. I'll give a- I'll be very generous and give this movie a rent it. (laughs) A very, very light recommendation. I think there's just enough- I mean, this is sort of the all dogs go to heaven thing where there's just enough weirdness in this movie- and things that you wouldn't see in a movie of this type today. I'm thinking like a lot of the practical effects. The, the casting. The casting. The fact that there's a, a virtually unknown little person in the lead role. The fact that you have Val Kilmer being this really bizarre cross-dressing. Yeah. You have to give them a lot of credit for um, their consideration of some of these roles. As much as this is just a hodgepodge of other better works. Oh. It, <laughs> it, it, there's just enough weirdness to it and maybe this is what inspired them to throw in all these interesting touches was to differentiate themselves Mm -hmm. from the hobbit and the princess bride and labyrinth and the holy bible and (laughs) star wars and all these other things that they've sort of ripped off everyone rips off the bible it's true one thing that we mentioned the casting and we didn't talk about this earlier john cusack apparently read for Val Kilmer's part. I would love to see that. I don't think it would work. I was seeing, I was watching all these action scenes and I was just picturing Cusack doing it and it just didn't work for me. Well, if you're curious what John Cusack is like as a swashbuckling, sword-flinging hero, apparently he just did a movie with Jackie Chan called Dragon Blade that was... Released exclusively in Chinese theaters. Although it's coming to the U.S. I think it's already available to Uh, rent online. Oh, direct-to-video Yeah, I wish that existed on VHS because that would be my next choice. Yeah, I like that, what was it? It was Adrian Brody, John Cusack, and Jackie Chan. Jackie Chan got top billing. I think that he's the biggest star of those three. He's definitely the biggest star of those three. I mean, I don't know how much overseas pull John Cusack has. Well, and it's just I don't think he brings in those blockbuster dollars like Jackie Chan does. Well, he was in 2012. Which we have not done a Jackie Chan movie on this podcast yet, and we need to. Yeah, we really do. I won't be doing a Jackie Chan movie for my next episode. What? Are you kidding me? But I will be doing a Harrison Ford action-adventure where he plays... The President of the United States aboard a certain plane known as Air Force One. I didn't know you were going to pick that. Just in time for the first presidential debates. Actually, yeah, that episode is going to come out around the time of the first debate. I think it'll be the day of. Oh, really? We'll see how it works out. I'd like to thank Will Price for use of his song Mandatory Groove. You can find more of Will's music at soundcloud.com slash gargantulon. You can also learn more about us and our podcast at our website, tapeheadspodcast.com. You can reach us by email at tapeheadspodcast at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear your feedback. You can rate and review us on iTunes. That's it for Tapeheads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Until next time. 